are Republicans and don't propose to leave our party and identify ourselves with the party whose antecedents have been rum, Romanism, and rebellion. That statement, famous in American political history ever since, was uttered by a pietist minister and Republican activist named Dr. Samuel Burchard during the 1884 election. And it perfectly sums up what the Democratic Party's main constituent groups were in the 1880s. Rum, meaning those who favored keeping alcohol legal. Romanism, meaning those who were either Catholic or at the very least not harshly anti-Catholic. And rebellion, meaning of course Southerners. Ironically, Burchard uttered those words in a speech meant to fire up the Republican base against Democratic presidential candidate Grover Cleveland. And Burchard, if I remember correctly, was in New York, which was Grover Cleveland's home state and at the time an important swing state, at least in this election. And Burchard's comments ended up having, as far as we can tell, the opposite effect. More than firing up the Republican base, it seems to have fired up the Democratic base by being seen as an insult against them and may have helped turn out the Democratic vote stronger than it otherwise would have been in New York in that election and ultimately was one of the keys to getting Grover Cleveland into the White House. Hey, everybody, this is CJ, your one-man revolution guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, back with another delectable dose of Dangerous History. You're listening to episode 119 of the Dangerous History podcast, Party Systems in American Political History, Part 2. And by the way, I highly recommend that if you've not already listened to episode 118, Part 1 of this, you really should go listen to that first because you'll understand better what I'm talking about. For example, I'm not going to re-explain here what party system means, and I'm not going to go through the whole entire backstory I already covered last episode. In this episode, we're going to go from the latter part of the third party system in the so-called Gilded Age, last few decades of the 19th century, on up through the fourth, fifth, and the controversial, questionable sixth party system, taking us to the present freak show of 2016 that is unfolding before all of our disbelieving eyes. I don't know about you, but to me this election is kind of like a really horrible, horrible accident. It's sickening, and you want to turn away, but somehow you just can't fully turn your gaze away. And of course, this series relates to the question I've been asking myself a lot in recent months, which is whether or not this election of 2016 that's going on right now, whether or not this particularly freakish freak show is actually a portent of some sort of party system shift underway beneath our feet, or is it just kind of a weird one-off election and things will be more back to quote-unquote normal in four, perhaps at most eight years? I don't know, but it inspired me to go ahead and cover an overview of America's political party system's throughout American history, to hopefully try and give things a little bit of historical context, even though I don't claim to be able to answer every question about the present or the future. But first, I gotta do my Patreon shoutouts. Big thanks go out to nobody for signing up since the last episode I produced. Now, to be fair, it's only been a few days since I made the last episode, but even so... Wah, 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 I've got no new Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast to report, and all I can assume is that I guess maybe folks really want me to have to hawk 
random stuff like mail order razors and mattresses and underwear and things like this. I don't know. But anyway, go to P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. That's Patreon.com slash ProfCJ. If you like this show, want to see it to continue to rock on and to improve over time, and you're not already a regular supporter there, please consider doing so. And if you sign up for at least $1 per episode donation, I'll thank you by name in the next episode I produce. And in addition to that, you'll have access to bonus episodes via Patreon that I post there and nowhere else. And also you'll be eligible to, if you so desire, join the private Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. All right, on to the story of party systems in American political history, and we pick up our story in the so-called Gilded Age. By the way, a term coined by Samuel Clemens, the writer and kind of ahead of his time stand-up comedian in a lot of ways, better known to history as Mark Twain. He coined the term Gilded Age to describe this era Gilded, if you don't know, means something that appears to be gold, but upon closer examination, perhaps scratching the surface, you realize it's not. So the Gilded Age, we're talking from like the mid to late 1870s on up through perhaps the mid 1890s. So we are in the latter part of the Third American Party System, which, if you'll remember from last time, began around 1856. During this era, the Republicans tended to try to brand themselves as the party of great moral ideas, while the Democrats tended to try to brand themselves as the party of personal liberty. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that back then, kind of rank-and-file party members were actually a bit more concerned with and knowledgeable about issues such as finance and banking and all sorts of esoteric stuff than they were today. Now, why was this? Well, the answer, at least in part, seems to be that party loyalties were tied at least as much back then, if not even more so than today, to things like ethnicity, culture, and religion, and then people's attitudes and stances on issues that related directly to that then kind of mapped themselves onto these larger issues like banking and money and all these sorts of things. People in the third party system tended to line up particularly strongly on so-called social issues. And then the economic issues were sort of grafted onto things, grafted onto the platform by the party's leadership. And there was a continuity of outlook between the stances on social issues and the stances on economic issues and things like that. Now, last time I introduced the concept of pietists and liturgicals, and I won't get into that in too much depth here because I've already covered it. I will again link in the show notes to a great article by historian Richard Jensen about this difference between these two kinds of American Christianity, pietist and liturgical, and how it affected politics. To make a long story short, the pietists were the denominations that leaned much more towards the idea of having the government heavily involved in trying to stamp out sin and vice, which was a lot of things, including alcohol and the influence of the Catholic Church, doing anything on Sunday other than going to church, and a variety of other things that traditionally had been considered at most kind of vices and sins. And the pietists were very into the idea of having the government get involved in policing those using the power of the state. Many, though not all, of the pietists also believed in some sort of a millennialist idea that they had to bring about what they called a kingdom of God on earth in order to 
help usher in the second coming of Christ. And many of them seem to have been true believers of this. And you can imagine the zealotry that one has in their political activism if they truly believe they're doing God's will and helping to bring about the second coming. That'll let a fire under your ass for sure. And a lot of this pietism then finds its way into something that emerges around the turn of the century in American politics, and that is progressivism. Now, a long time ago, I did some episodes on progressivism. And like I always say with my early episodes, I don't think the audio quality is very good. I don't stand behind that very much. I was learning by doing. I was learning how to podcast by podcasting through trial and error. And basically, it was mostly error in the early days. However, like I always say about my early episodes, I do stand by the basic content. And so I'll link to my main episode on progressivism in the show notes as well. And I'll also link in the external links section to an interesting article by libertarian Gary North, who, in addition to being an economist, is also, I believe, some sort of old school Calvinist, if I'm not mistaken. And he had a very interesting article a while back about millennialism and how it affected American progressivism. And during the third party system, pietists tended pretty overwhelmingly to be Republicans as opposed to the so-called liturgicals, who were the denominations that had a different approach to things like salvation and whether or not the state should be involved in policing vice and sin, and tended to be more skeptical of the idea of having all vices be crimes. And these religious groups tended to be Democrats. These liturgicals tended to be Democrats during both the second and third party systems. Now, Southerners also tended to be Democrats, during the third party system. And of course, a big part of this is simply the legacy of the Civil War and Lincoln and all that kind of stuff. Understandably soured many Southerners for many generations on the Republican Party across the board. But also, Southerners prior to about the 1890s weren't really pietist. They were what's sometimes called quietist, which sounds similar, but is a little bit different. It's not until about the 1890s that pietism, with a P, starts to take over a lot of Southern Christianity. Prior to that, more Southerners tended to be quietist, and Richard Jensen talks about this in the article I'm linking to in the show notes again. But basically, my understanding of a quietist and how they differ from a pietist is that, well, like a pietist, a quietist believes that it's important for an individual to go through a kind of personal, mystical, emotional conversion process, being born again, saved, however you want to put it, but that a quietist doesn't then believe that it's the job of a believer to use the state to try and enforce being saved upon everybody else. And so even though Southern quietists wouldn't have agreed theologically with liturgicals on very much, they would tend to come to the same conclusion about politics, that is, the government should leave things out. Now, it's going to change, and by the 1890s, pietism, with a P, has largely taken over a lot of Southern evangelical Christianity, and it's going to be a part of why sort of populism and progressivism become major forces within the Democratic Party near the end of the 19th century when they hadn't been before. And it's going to turn the Democratic Party sharply away from the kind of Jefferson slash Jackson tradition of minimal government and low taxes and laissez-faire and all that. Now, just as the Republicans 
and their pietist supporters tended to like the idea of the government being involved in policing vice and sin, they then also were more comfortable with the idea of the government being more interventionist in the economy. Again, we're specifically talking about the third party system here. Things change later on. By contrast, liturgicals, who tended to be more laissez-faire on kind of personal morality social issues, also then tended to be more laissez-faire leaning on economic issues. Now, a few more characteristics of the third-party system, and primarily we're talking about the last few decades of it in the Gilded Age here. First off, there were almost no such thing as independent voters, because not only were families and communities very cohesive towards one party or another, but also... There were a couple other things going on that made it even more difficult to be a, an independent or a split-ticket voter or anything like that than today. For example, in most jurisdictions in the Gilded Age, the parties printed their own ballot. And when you went to vote, you'd be asked what party you were, and then based on what you answered, you'd be given one party's ballot or another. And guess who were the only candidates on a party's ballot? You guessed right, the candidates of that party. In addition, in most jurisdictions during the Gilded Age, there was not a secret ballot. So you would go vote very often verbally out there in front of everybody, including your friends, your neighbors, your family, your boss, and whatever. Understandably, that enforced a higher degree of party discipline. It meant that very few people voted against kind of what they were, and it also meant that there was almost no such thing as split-ticket voting, where one voter votes for more than one party, you know, across a whole spectrum of offices. Now, in most areas during the latter part of the third-party system, other than the South, which tended to be, you know, the solid South, overwhelmingly Democrat, in most of the rest of of the country, the two parties were relatively evenly matched, and very often margins of victory were razor-thin. Another characteristic of the third-party system, especially this latter part of it, is that voter turnout was quite high, often around 80% or even sometimes more during Gilded Age elections. Now, it's true that despite what I said before about the two parties being evenly matched in most areas of the country during this time period, it's true that the Republicans won the White House the vast majority of the time during the third party system. But I would point out that First, many of their victories were pretty darn thin or were, in fact, electoral victories without a popular victory and or, in at least a few occasions, may have been totally questionable elections at all. And here I'm thinking primarily of the disputed election between Republican Rutherford Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden in in 1876, in which Tilden undoubtedly won the popular vote Hayes eventually was ruled to have won the electoral vote, but it was very questionable and it was basically a political deal that resulted in Hayes being certified as the president in that election. And there's a lot of reason to think that Tilden probably won it legit, even in the electoral college. Again, the the exception in many ways is the so-called Solid South, which would remain overwhelmingly democratic as a legacy of the not-so-civil war. And in most of the South, it was like a one-party system, and what only mattered in politics there was the Democratic primary. The only areas of the South where there was anything like a viable Republican Party were a few parts of Appalachia, especially eastern Tennessee and eastern Kentucky. Now, I want to briefly mention a little bit about the presidency of Grover Cleveland. 
I think he's very interesting and important for a variety of reasons. Many people like Murray Rothbard and other kind of prominent libertarians consider Grover Cleveland one of the least bad presidents in American history. And certainly there's some things I don't like him on, but in general, I mean, compared to the competition, I think he definitely is a strong contender for one of the least bad presidents in American history. And he was the last Democratic president of kind of the old school Jeffersonian Democrats. He was the only Democrat who successfully made it to the White House during the Gilded Age, and he served as president from 1885 to 1889 and from 1893 to 97. If you didn't already know this, I'll tell you, obviously, that Grover Cleveland was the only president in American history so far to serve two terms that were not consecutive. He was from Buffalo, New York, and prior to being president, he had been the mayor of Buffalo and the governor of New York State. He was a Presbyterian, but one of the old-school Calvinist types, so tended to be more liturgical in his outlook and how his religious views affected his politics. For the most part, with a few exceptions, he was a fairly consistent proponent of laissez-faire economics. He stood against currency inflation, and kind of the flip side of that coin was a staunch defender of the gold standard and sound money. During his presidency, he fought to get the tariff reduced, although... The Republican-dominated Congress prevented him from achieving as much as he wanted on that front. He was, again, not entirely consistently, but compared to the kind of contemporaries and certainly what we've had since, he was a rather anti-interventionist foreign policy president. Again, hearkening back to the old-school Jeffersonian tradition. So, for example, during his second term, he temporarily put the brakes on the American takeover of Hawaii, though, of course, McKinley, who followed him into the White House, would complete that process. He also took a firm stance during his second term against having a war with Spain over Cuba, something I talked about in my episode about the Spanish-American War a long time ago. Again, bad audio quality, still stand by the content. But that was another thing that his successor, William McKinley, would undo and would eventually take the country to war against Spain. By the way, Mark Twain actually wrote, I think it was in a letter to somebody, that Cleveland was by far the best politician of that era in terms of his integrity and his honesty and all these sorts of things. And I think if I remember the quote correctly, Mark Twain wrote something like, Cleveland drunk is better than most other politicians sober. By the way, to contrast that, Mark Twain met with Teddy Roosevelt in... Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, you know, half a generation later. And again, if memory serves correctly, Mark Twain came out of that meeting and said, and I think I'm quoting here, the president is clearly insane. So there you go. I'm personally a big Mark Twain fan for a variety of reasons. But anyway, during Cleveland's second term, there was a bad economic depression that started kind of during the first year of his second term. And it's usually dated to be a depression lasting from 1893 to 1897. And it was pretty bad. It was actually the worst depression in American history up to that point. Now, I don't think that Cleveland deserves that much of the blame for this depression. I think there's lots of complicated factors why it happened, some of them international and global. But as is always the case, whether justifiably or not, Cleveland was the president when this happened, so he gets at least a good share of the blame. And so... Going into the presidential election of 1896, 
There's a lot of shakeups happening in America. The country's changing in a variety of ways. It's really the beginning of urban America outnumbering rural America in the aggregate. And you have all of the tensions of all these new immigrants coming from places like Italy and Russia, Greece, Ireland, all these sorts of places. And then a lot of so-called native wasps not taking that very well and seeing it as a horrible threat to civilization. And you've got changes happening within the American political system. Now, something that was clearly happening by Cleveland's second term was an important division and kind of civil war within the Democratic Party. There were two factions starting to fight it out inside the party. You had a group known as the Bourbon Democrats. These were your more laissez-faire, old-school Jeffersonian Democrats, people like Grover Cleveland. They stuck to the old democratic ideas of limited government, low taxes, low government spending, relatively laissez-faire economy, all those sorts of things, and also stuck to the idea of the gold standard, hard money, resisting inflation, however you want to put it. They were battling against the more kind of big government populist wing of the Democratic Party. And also, there was starting to emerge a group who would be known as progressives, who are a little different from the populists, but found common cause on a variety of issues, including in general favoring a bigger, more active government. Now, at the same time, there was a factional battle going on between bourbons and populists inside the Democratic Party. There was also a separate populist party being formed. Its official name was the People's Party, but it's better known to history as the Populist Party. And there was some personnel overlap between them and the populist faction inside the Democrats. And there certainly was a lot of ideological overlap. They basically wanted the same things, the Populist Party, as did the Populist Democrats. They were just in disagreement over strategy. The Populist Democrats believed the best way to get their platform put into action was through working inside the existing Democratic Party, whereas, by contrast, those who formed and ran the Populist Party thought the best way to do it was to start a totally new party. Now, these populists and also their progressive allies tend to be much more pietist-minded than the old-school Bourbon Democrats, who are more liturgical-minded. And so there really is a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party happening by the 1890s. And plot spoiler, the Bourbons are going to lose control of the National Democratic Party in 1896 and never really regained it. From then on, they were kind of a, a marginal part in terms of the leadership of the national level Democratic Party. Now, I want to briefly mention some elements of the Populist Party's platform. The Populist Party was formed in 1892. And it actually did pretty well for a new non-Big Two party in the 1892 presidential election. It actually won four states, Kansas, Colorado, Idaho, and Nevada, and racked up 22 electoral votes in 1892. Some of the important parts of the Populist Party's platform, and this would, again, also apply equally to a lot of the preferences of the populists within the Democratic Party, were things like, in general, they wanted more democracy. A lot of the things they wanted to make things more democratic are things that we actually have gotten since the 1890s. Things like popular election of senators, of U.S. senators, which is accomplished in the 17th Amendment. Direct primaries, which we have now. Secret ballot, which of course we have now. One big thing that the Populist Party was fixated on was the idea of inflation. They were trying very hard to represent the preferences and 
goals of small farmers as best they understood them, and they believed that inflation would help America's farmers. Now, economically, this is a fallacious belief, but, you know, just because something is not factually correct doesn't mean people won't passionately believe in it and passionately fight for it. And the populace wanted inflation, and most of them wanted inflation through what they called bimetallism, which meant adding silver to the gold standard, you know, basis of the country's money supply. And so the populist party endorsed unlimited coinage of silver in an effort to increase the money supply and cause inflation. The populist party also favored a graduated income tax, which we get in 1913. They also advocated government ownership of most major infrastructure, things like the transportation and communication networks of the country. And at the time, of course, the big ones were railroad and telegraph. To sort of throw a bone to urban working class people, they advocated things like an eight-hour workday, but they never really made much of a serious appeal to urban working class people. They tended to be a bunch of wasp pietists who really alienated a lot of urban ethnic working class, you know, immigrants and immigrants' kids who might otherwise have voted Democrat. The Populist Party certainly had a xenophobic element to it and, in fact, had in some of its campaign literature and whatnot a real anti-Semitic streak. But certainly a lot of disgruntled wasp pietist farmers, especially in kind of the Great Plains states, you know, Kansas, Nebraska, whatever, certainly many of them were leaning towards the populace during this time period. Other than farmers, especially from the Midwest and to a lesser extent from some areas of the South, other than them, the only other group of Americans who went for the populace in a big way were silver miners. And you can understand exactly why, considering the populist party's stance on adding silver to the money supply. That means if you're a silver miner, if that passes, your silver mine just transformed into an ATM. So the populist party, like I said, did surprisingly well for a new non-major party in 1892. And in 1896, there was a full-blown depression going on. So it seemed like it might give them an opportunity to do even better. And the 1896 presidential election is going to be one of those turning point elections in American political history. Now, the Republicans were certainly at an advantage. They didn't have anything equivalent to the internal battle the Democrats were experiencing between populists and bourbons going on inside their party. By comparison, they were relatively unified. In addition, they had the advantage of having had a depression going on the last few years while a Democrat was in the White House. So they, without too much fuss, nominated Ohio politician William McKinley, who favored, in order to revive the country's economy, a high tariff and sticking to the gold standard. And McKinley's campaign did something that ended up being a very wise move tactically in this election. They kind of rebranded the Republican Party. They decided to back off on the social issues. Not that they abandoned them entirely, but they decided to kind of de-emphasize them. So they put much less emphasis on things like alcohol, anti-Catholicism, anti-immigrant sentiment, etc., and a lot more emphasis on economic issues. And they changed their branding of the party from the party of great moral ideals to the party of prosperity. Now, the Democrats were in a much harder position. Not only did they have an incumbent president during a bunch of years of a bad economy, but they had this internal battle going on between populists and bourbons, between silver Democrats and gold Democrats, in other words. 
and it was a very bitterly divided Democratic convention in 1896. This is back when the convention still meant everything. This is back before primaries. The man who ended up emerging was a charismatic orator from the Great Plains, a 36-year-old former congressman from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan, pietist, populist extraordinaire. And he managed to get the Democratic Party's nomination, but it was very hard fought. The climax of the convention came with William Jennings Bryan delivering his now famous speech known as the Cross of Gold speech, which reaches a crescendo in which he says something like, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. In other words, really dramatic language, very pietistic and blaming the kind of working man and farmer's problems on the gold standard. He manages to get the nomination, but a lot of Democrats are not really happy with him. Simultaneously, the Populist Party had to decide what to do. Many of them liked Brian, and they'd worked with Brian and wanted to nominate him. But others thought the Populist Party would be better off if it stayed separate from the Democrats. But the pro-fusion element of the Populist Party ended up winning out, and the Populist Party also nominated William Jennings Bryan. So William Jennings Bryan, in the 1896 election, was the candidate of two political parties, the Democrats and the Populists. And to make things even more weird and interesting, he had two different vice presidential candidates, one given to him by the Democratic Party and another given to him by the, by the uh, excuse me, Populist Party. So depending on whether you voted for William Jennings Bryan as a Democrat or as a populist, you were voting for a different VP. Now, how this would have been solved in practice if Bryan would have won the election? Would they have arm wrestled for it? Would they have done... Paper, rock, scissors, lizard, Spock or something? I don't know. But we're saved from having to deal with that by the fact that McKinley wins anyway. By the way, interesting side note. Some of the old school pro-gold standard bourbon Democrats, those kind of Clevelandite Democrats, some of them just couldn't bring themselves to work with the party. Now that it had been taken over, I'm sure in their eyes, hijacked by the Bryanites. So they formed their own minor party called the National Democratic Party, and they styled themselves as Democrats in the tradition of Jefferson and Jackson and Cleveland. They nominated John Palmer, a former senator from Illinois for president, and Simon Bolivar Buckner, a former governor of Kentucky, for vice president. By the way, that particular ticket was, and as far as I know still is, the oldest combined age ticket ever in U.S. history. Palmer was 79, and Buckner was 73. Well, long story short, despite Brian's charisma and his kind of unprecedented personal campaign across the country, which was considered kind of unpresidential back then, he kind of broke the mold with that. Despite all that, when the votes went down, McKinley won with 51% of the popular vote against Brian's 47 And McKinley's electoral college vote was much more overwhelming, 271 to 176. Now, there were several minor parties in this election, and of those, the National Democratic Party, those bourbon gold standard Democrats, they did the best out of any of the minor parties. They got just under 1% of the popular vote, mostly, as you would expect, siphoning votes that would otherwise have gone to the Democrats from Democrats who didn't like Bryan and didn't like populism. Now, 
the amount of votes that the National Democrats siphoned off wasn't enough to really change the outcome, though some people believe that it might have caused McKinley to win Kentucky. By the way, in case you're curious, the other minor parties in this election included the Socialists and the Prohibition Party. And I'm not counting, in this election at least, the Populist Party as a minor party since it was basically teamed up with the Democrats for this election. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, knowing what happened in the decades after the 1896 election, we know that this was a shift. This was a turning point election that shook up the political paradigm in America from what it had been previously. It ended the third party system and inaugurated the fourth. Now, in contrast to previous shifts of party system, in this shift, the names of the two parties stayed the same. But when you look at voter behavior and issues and the kind of dynamics of the system and what's going on, while there are certainly some things that are the same as previously, many things have changed. And so this is why political historians call this the shift from the third to the fourth party system. The fourth party system will last from 1896 to about 1932 or 33, depending on how exactly you want to slice it. And during the fourth party system, unlike in the third, the Republican Party was pretty clearly dominant most of the time in most parts of the country. The only exception still being the solid Democratic South. The Republicans elected all the presidents of this era from 1896 to 1932, with one exception, Democrat Woodrow Wilson, whose election was largely one of these one-off flukes due to specific extenuating circumstances. One of the things that came out of the political realignment of 1896 was that the two parties increasingly were not as ideologically distinct from each other as they had been previously. Now, one of the things that was important in the Democratic Party's nomination of Bryan and in the increasingly pietist streak within the Democratic Party from 1896 onward was that the South had caught pietist fever by this time period. And so increasingly, both the Democrat and Republican parties at the highest levels were more favorable to the general idea of big government, and both were much more in the pietist direction. Now, an interesting thing happened, but it's totally understandable. In light of the two parties becoming increasingly harder to tell apart during the fourth party system, grassroots voter participation and attention dropped off dramatically. You can see it in the voter participation figures. They fall off pretty quickly after 1896. And it makes sense, right? If you're an average grassroots voter and political party activist, and it's increasingly harder to tell what the hell the differences are between the two parties, then it becomes increasingly less worth your effort and time and money and whatever to be heavily involved. Now, with the grassroots increasingly tuning out, that created an opportunity. And that opportunity was for the power elite. And power elite politics is going to fill the vacuum left by grassroots voters during the fourth party system. Now, it's true that the super wealthy, and especially the big bankers and some of the other big corporations, had always had a strong influence on American politics. I mean, you can go all the way back to Robert Morris of the Founding Fathers generation doing this sort of stuff. But there had always been somewhat of a check on the ability of the power elite to just fully, completely take over. And that check was the average voter, 
the average citizen was actually pretty plugged in and involved and active during the third party system. But now he's tuning out because the two parties are harder to tell apart. That creates a great opportunity. And what happens is the power elite is able to take over manipulating the system, which they'd always done, but to do it on a much grander scale and with much less checks against them from the grassroots than ever before. And by this time period, you had the two big financial blocks that I've mentioned in various contexts in this podcast before. The J.P. Morgan block and the Rockefeller-Harriman-Kuhn-Loeb alliance against them, which they'd been fighting against each other in the economic sphere for the most part, and occasionally in the political sphere prior to 1896. But after 1896, that becomes really the centerpiece of understanding what's happening in the U.S. government and U.S. politics. Before 1896, the Morgan faction had tended to be more Democratic and the Rockefeller faction had tended to be more Republican. But after 1896, both the Morgan and Rockefeller factions have a lot of pull in both of the big parties. And I would argue that from at least 1900 through at the latest World War II, a politician's affiliation with one or the other of the two big financial gangs, the Morgans and the Rockefellers, is much more important to understanding what he's doing and why than is his, uh, his uh, party affiliation. And I just want to read to you a quote from the infamous book Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time by Carol Quigley. This is Carol Quigley, the guy with the inside scoop on a lot of the power elite's history, talking about what finance capitalists, meaning like the big investment bankers, the Wall Street types, were able to do in politics by the late 19th century. Carol Quigley says that by the late 19th century, finance capitalists, listen very carefully to this, quote, expected that they would be able to control both parties equally. Indeed, some of them intended to contribute to both and to allow an alternation of the two parties in public office in order to conceal their own influence, inhibit any exhibition of independence by politicians, and allow the electorate to believe that they were exercising their own free choice. Now I'm going to repeat that one more time because I think it's that important. Finance capitalists, quote, expected that they would be able to control both parties equally. Indeed, some of them intended to contribute to both and to allow an alternation of the two parties in public office in order to conceal their own influence, inhibit any exhibition of independence by politicians, and allow the electorate to believe that they were exercising their own free choice, end quote. And that introduces us to the fourth party system and frankly to much of American politics ever since. Now, again, the fourth party system is usually dated to 1896 to 1932, give or take, you know, a year or two. And some overall characteristics, again, Republican Party dominates everywhere other than the South. It even does surprisingly well in some of the big cities that were full of immigrants, the cities that both prior to the fourth party system and after the fourth party system tended to be overwhelmingly Democratic. You actually find Republican mayors and city councilmen and so on being elected in some of these cities. The South, of course, remains the solid South, and that doesn't really change until really in a big way the mid to late 1960s. In the fourth party system, pietism and progressivism tended to be major forces dominating both parties at the highest levels. 
And people with kind of liturgical and or libertarian ideas are most of the time in a subordinate position to the pietist progressive types. Now, not surprisingly, given the state of affairs, alcohol prohibition finally gets passed because now, because of the pietist takeover of the Democratic Party, now major factions in both parties are in favor of alcohol prohibition. And it reminds me of the old saying about how in American politics, we have two parties, the stupid party and the evil party, and occasionally they cooperate on something. And when they do, the result is both stupid and evil. And this is what we laud as bipartisanship. Yep, bipartisanship has given us such wonderful things as alcohol prohibition, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the Patriot Act, No Child Left Behind, and a bunch of the other worst things in American history that literally nobody likes. Thanks, bipartisanship. Also during this era, where the two parties are less ideologically different from each other and progressive pietists are big in both parties, we get wonderful things like the Federal Reserve System and the income tax. These are all legacies of having the two parties dominated by kind of pietist progressive types. Now, it's true that in some ways, in the 1920s, the Republican Party for a while turned against progressivism somewhat under presidents like Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. However, in 1928, the Republican Party ran a fairly progressive Republican, Herbert Hoover, for president. Also, I would point out that even Harding and Coolidge, as kind of anti-progressive as they were, they didn't fully turn against and undo a lot of the progressive legacy. For example, neither Harding nor Coolidge opposed prohibition, neither of them opposed or tried to get rid of or undermine the Federal Reserve, neither of them took to eliminate the income tax, you know, they cut some taxes, but they didn't go so far as to try to eliminate some of these things entirely. Also, this era, 1896 to 1932, saw a massive increase in American militarism and interventionism abroad. From the Spanish-American War to the Filipino War to countless interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean under all of the presidents, Republican and Democrat, of this era. By the way, I'll talk about some of these. Many of them are very little known. Interventions, especially in Latin America and the Caribbean and occasionally further abroad than that during this period, I'll talk about them probably to some extent in what I'm planning on being the next episode of this show, a coverage of the life of General Smedley Butler of War as a Racket fame, who cut his teeth and earned a lot of his fame decorations in a lot of these so-called small wars in Latin America, the Caribbean, and even a few times in Asia. A lot of this stuff is very important, but very little known today. And a lot of these sorts of little wars have more in common with a lot of our recent wars than they do with kind of the big wars like World War II that everyone thinks of when they hear the word war. Of course, the biggest of all these interventions is U.S. entry into World War I under the progressive Democrat Woodrow Wilson. So I'd say overall, this era, with its progressive, bipartisan consensus on so many issues, is, especially in terms of foreign policy, really the beginning of Team America World Police, kind of on the path to what we know it as today. And again, in this party system, I would argue that much more important to understanding who's doing what and why, much more important than Republican or Democrat, is understanding someone's background, Morgan or Rockefeller, which financial block do they represent? I want to briefly mention 
the high and or low points of a few interesting or notable elections that took place during the fourth party system. One of them is the 1912 election, which I think I talked about in a little bit of detail way back when I covered American progressivism. This election results in the only Democratic president of the fourth party system, and I'm talking about the wonderful, meant sarcastically, I hate his guts, Woodrow Wilson. And the only reason Wilson was able to even get elected in 1912 was that there was a three-way election in which, essentially, the Republican vote was split. You had incumbent President William Howard Taft running as a Republican, but then you also had wildcard Teddy Roosevelt as the progressive or Bull Moose Party candidate, siphoning off a lot of what otherwise probably would have been Republican votes. And this results in Wilson getting the White House. And so it's a good example of what I've said before of like a wild card election that's abnormal, but doesn't end up heralding a shift of party system. It's just specific, acute circumstances that cause things to be unusual. And Wilson, from the seat of being incumbent, is able to somewhat narrowly get reelected in 1916. Another election that's interesting in this era, primarily for the Democratic primary, is 1924, where you had an interesting battle within the Democratic Party between Al Smith of New York, who was both a Catholic and a wet, someone who thought alcohol prohibition was wrong and should be repealed, and was very upfront and outspoken about this. Unlike many politicians who themselves drank, but then supported prohibition, Smith was honest and upfront enough to flat out say it's wrong and we should repeal it. Now, within the Democratic Party in 1924, there was a battle between the Smith forces, which represented kind of the northern urban ethnic, many times Catholic or Jewish or something other than WASP working classes, against the progressive, pietist, wasp forces of William Gibbs McAdoo, whose qualifications included being Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, being endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan, and being a staunch prohibitionist and progressive. What ended up happening was neither faction, the Smith supporters or the McAdoo supporters, could get enough votes to get their guy nominated. And so the compromise ended up being, of all things, John W. Davis, former personal attorney for J.P. Morgan. And he went up against another J.P. Morgan buddy, Calvin Coolidge, who kicked his butt in the general election anyway. And one more interesting election I'll mention that came out of the fourth party system is the 1928 presidential general election between this time Al Smith got the Democratic Party's nominee. So we have a Catholic wet presidential candidate in 1928, and he's running against progressive Republican, largely supported by the pietist Herbert Hoover. And it ends up being a very nasty campaign on the Republicans part based on a lot of religious and ethnic bigotry. And what's unusual about this election is that the Republican Herbert Hoover actually wins a few Southern states, a very rare thing for a Republican to do prior to the late 60s. And it all has to do with this combination of religion and alcohol. A lot of Southerners would actually rather vote for the party of Abraham Lincoln than vote for a Catholic wet like Al Smith. Now, what really broke down this fourth party system and shifted it into the fifth party system was a combination of the Great Depression and 
simultaneously increasing popular support for the repeal of prohibition. And so the fifth party system is usually dated as beginning with either the election or the inauguration of Franklin D. Roosevelt as president. So it usually is dated to start at 1932 or 33. And when does it end? 1968, 1980, are we still in it? That's still argued by political historians and political scientists. Now, the fifth party system is to a large extent characterized by the so-called New Deal coalition put together in the Democratic Party by FDR for the first time in the 1932 election. And this Democratic Party New Deal coalition dominates the political party system of the fifth party system. And the main components of this coalition are liberal intellectuals, northern urban working class people, white southerners, farmers, including western farmers, and where they were able to vote and participate in politics, ethnic minorities. It's a weird coalition of people who don't always agree on everything, and somehow FDR is able to hold them together. Now, this coalition is going to start to fall apart in the 1960s over a bunch of issues, including especially civil rights sort of issues, and also things like the Vietnam War. The Democrats are clearly the dominant party during the fifth party system, both in terms of holding the White House and Congress. There's just a few times where the Republicans have control of the Senate, and I don't think they ever have a majority in the House during the kind of heyday of the fifth party system. And the only president that the Republicans managed to elect between 1932 and 68 was, of course, Dwight Eisenhower in the 50s. And this was kind of a special case based on personal popularity and appeal of this great general, this war hero. In fact, most of the time, the Democrats would dominate Congress from the 30s all the way through the 80s, though by the late 60s, they were getting less good at electing presidents consistently. During the 1930s, the Rockefeller faction got the upper hand in the power elite struggle against the Morgans. And in part, this was through the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt himself. Roosevelt was in particular very close to the Harriman family, who were in turn close allies of the Rockefellers. And then during and immediately after World War II, these two factions, the Morgans and the Rockefellers, they, for lack of a better term, merged in various ways, through business mergers, through social mergers, that sort of thing. And these two factions merged with the Rockefellers being kind of like the dominant partner and the Morgan side being kind of like now the junior partner into what eventually gets known as the Eastern Establishment or sometimes called the Yankees. And this nomenclature of Yankees and then their opponents, the Cowboys, comes primarily from the book The Yankee and Cowboy War that I've mentioned several times before on this show. Now, this Eastern Establishment group, or Yankees, were firmly in the driver's seat in both the Democratic administrations and the one Republican administration, that being, of course, Eisenhower, prior to 1960. However, in the 1960s, the faction known as the Cowboys, or kind of the, the Sun Belt or Southern Rim people, people from states like Texas and California and Florida and Arizona, and there were Cowboys in both parties, by the way just as there were Yankees in both parties. The Cowboys started to push back and to increasingly win elections. So, for example, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan would all be considered Sunbelt Cowboys. And, of course, from the 1940s onward, there's been a tendency of bipartisan consensus 
on the issue of a very heavily activist, aggressive foreign policy, although admittedly the two parties sometimes differ on the details, as did the two factions of Yankees and Cowboys. Now, some will say that the Fifth Party system ended around 1968, give or take a few years. Others will say the Fifth Party system ended in the 1980s or 90s. And some will say that we're still in the Fifth Party system. My own opinion is that the Fifth Party system really ended somewhere, and it's not really possible to pinpoint an exact year or an exact election, but it ended over the course of the years 1964 to 1980. And you can see the harbingers of this in the Yankee Cowboy War itself that got rolling in the early 60s, largely over cowboy dissatisfaction with Kennedy's increasingly less belligerent policies in regards to things like Cuba and Southeast Asia. You can see the fifth party system, I think, breaking down with the 1964 election, where, for example, Republican Barry Goldwater lost overall in a massive landslide to LBJ, but he did Goldwater surprisingly well in, of all places, the Deep South, a place which had been solid Democrat for basically a century. In fact, other than his home state of Arizona, the only other states that Goldwater won in 64 were Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. And one can see the end of the Fifth Party system, I think, happening in Richard Nixon's 1968 win, which is in part a result from his so-called Southern strategy, where he began to explicitly appeal to disgruntled white Southern Democrats. And his landslide re-election in 72 shows that the strategy worked. You can also see the end of the fifth party system in some ways with more and more white Southern Democrats over the course of the 70s, 80s and beyond eventually becoming Republicans. So probably one of the most high profile ones of these was Governor John Connolly of Texas, the guy who was in the car with Kennedy when Kennedy was shot. He increasingly worked more with the Republicans. He was the Treasury Secretary under Richard Nixon. He was actually the Treasury Secretary who ended the Bretton Woods system and pulled the plug on what was left of the remnants of the gold standard. And Connolly officially became a Republican in 1973. And, you know, so did a bunch of other former prominent Southern Democrats, Strom Thurmond even, I forget exactly what year he did it. But this shows you that it's changing what it means to be a Republican and a Democrat as of the 60s and 70s. And one of the key things happening on like the big demographic stage in the background that was really bringing about the end of the fifth party system, in my opinion, is the decline of the Rust Belt, those kind of factory and mineral industry states of the Northeast and the Great Lakes. They're declining from about the 60s onward, especially from the 70s onward. And that decline is a topic I plan on covering in more detail in the future, by the way, because I find it very interesting. And at the same time, the Rust Belt was declining. The Sun Belt was continuing to boom exponentially in population and in wealth. I mean, it really started with World War II itself, but it took off exponentially in the 60s and 70s. And that has done a massive amount to shake up the fifth party system in a variety of ways. This change in demographics and the economics of the country more towards the so-called Southern Rim has drastically altered the apportionment of congressmen and therefore of electoral college votes so that now and for quite a while, actually, three of the top four states in America in terms of population are and have been for a bunch of years now Sunbelt states, 
Those, of course, are California, Texas, and Florida. And I think that the peeling away of the South out of the New Deal coalition at the very least began to undo the fifth party system. And certainly this gets, if anything, the deal gets kind of sealed once the a lot of the working class white ethnic, what get known as the Reagan Democrats, leave to join many white Southerners in increasingly voting Republican, at least in the presidential elections, even if many of them remain registered Democrats and might have still often voted for Democrats for state and local things and even for Congress. But increasingly, from 1980 onward, these so-called Reagan Democrats are voting for Republicans most of the time for president, and that shakes things up. Which brings us to this whole question of the six-party system, something that is still, you know, kind of nebulous around us if it is such a thing, and that people who specialize in the field of political science and the history of American political parties still debate with each other about. So again, I don't think you can pinpoint the beginning of the six-party system in as much of a precise way as you could most of the previous party systems, but I would say, again, it's kind of a gradual fading out of the fifth and fading in of the sixth over the course of something like 1960 to 1980 thereabouts. And I'll just say a few characteristics that seem pretty prominent of this sixth party system that I think we're still in, although it's possible we may be near the end of it. The Republican Party is a sometimes awkward, strange bedfellows combination or coalition of some different factions. You've got evangelical white Christian right right wingers from the South and to a lesser extent the West. And the overlapping group of kind of white working and middle class people from the rural and suburban areas, plus some parts of corporate America, although others do go Democrat. The notion that the Republicans are only the only party of the corporations is, of course, ridiculous. Plus, in this awkward coalition of the current Republican Party and the six party system, you've got a bunch of numerically small but way highly disproportionately influential neocon intellectuals who've really hijacked the foreign policy of the Republican Party for decades now. And they're able to ally with what should be weird partners for them in a lot of ways, kind of culturally and ethnically and so on, the Christian right, primarily over the issues of supporting Israel no matter what, and closely related to that, pursuing strategies of unending war in the Middle East. And even the religious right itself is not exactly the same as it used to be many generations ago. The religious right now includes many conservative Catholics who, just a few generations ago, evangelical Protestants would have considered enemies and agents of the Antichrist even. And now increasingly they're allied together in this so-called religious right. Then you've got another awkward, weird ramshackle coalition in the Democrats, they're a combination of most of America's non-white ethnic groups, plus kind of feminist and women's rights sort of groups, and in general, non-heterosexuals of whatever stripe, which is entirely understandable given the Christian rights attitude towards them and their, the Christian rights dominance of the Republicans. I mean, you know, can't blame someone for not wanting to support a party that basically bashes them all the time. And then also in this Democratic coalition, you've got kind of urban affluent white progressives, especially if they're of the academic variety in one way or another. Plus, at least since Bill Clinton's rise within the Democratic Party in the early 90s, the Democrats have explicitly 
courted Wall Street and corporate America's support as fervently, if not in some cases more so, than the Republicans. And in some elections in the last few decades, the Democrats, despite always marketing themselves still as the anti-big business party, they've actually out-fundraised Republicans from Wall Street and big corporation sources. And as far as I know, as of right now, Hillary Clinton is getting almost all the Wall Street money, and Trump is not, which is kind of interesting. The six-party system, I would say, is in many ways more just explicitly about identity politics all around than previous party systems. Now, admittedly, identity politics have always figured in, in various ways, to American politics. It's not like they haven't been there all along. They have. But in the sixth party system, it's this real fixation, sometimes even, and perhaps even often, trumping ideology and platform is this whole concept of identity politics. So you've got the Democrats often focusing on things like race, gender, and sexual orientation. And this, of course, plays into the current excesses of the PC fascist police. And then you've got the Republicans focusing on kind of their branding of identity politics, things like values issues and social issues as their way of kind of expressing their version of us versus them. Although increasingly these days, at least some elements of the so-called alt-right are kind of starting to go full-on unapologetic white supremacist, from what I can see. Now, I would argue that despite their rhetoric and marketing, the mainstream and leadership of both parties in recent times, in practice at least, tends to be very similar on many, many important issues, such as the economy. You know, both are arguably even more Wall Street dominated than were the two parties during the fourth party system. And also in another key area, foreign policy. And I would argue that liberal internationalism and neoconservatism, in my opinion, are just different rhetorical ways of marketing the same kind of imperialist adventurism. And as evidence for that, for those two things, I would point to the generally bipartisan consensus for most of the recent interventions, and I would also draw your attention to the bipartisan support for the 2008 Wall Street bailout, something that the vast majority of the American people of both parties and, and independents totally opposed, and then most of the people in Congress of both parties came together to pass it, including, by the way, both presidential candidates of 2008, Barack Obama, senator for the Democrats, John McCain, senator for the Republicans, both of them went and voted and helped pass the Wall Street bailout. And it's only the fringes of the two parties. Characters like Dennis Kucinich of the Democrats and Ron Paul of the Republicans, who have in any serious way questioned the bipartisan consensus on the economy and on foreign policy. And let's be honest, neither of them ever came anywhere near close to altering the trajectory of their respective parties. So that's kind of where I see us where we're at today. It's a weird thing, because on the one hand, if anything, in a lot of important areas of policy, the two parties are as close as they've ever been, even while their rhetoric and marketing is oftentimes as oppositional as it's ever been. And there's this consensus on things like economics and foreign policy at the elite levels of leadership. At the same time, the rank and file grassroots of the two parties are 
about as bitterly had each other as they've been, at least in my lifetime. And it has to do with identity politics rather than with policy differences on key issues in a lot of cases. So in conclusion, what do you think Trump represents? I'm not sure. I don't think we'll know for sure until at least another 10 or 20 years has passed. But it's interesting to think about. Are we kind of in the middle of a shift of party system? Is this happening under our feet? Is it, as Aristotle would say, a revolution within the form, as the other recent shifts have been, where the two parties will still call themselves the same thing, and they'll still have some of the same kind of marketing and appeal, but there's a real change in what these things mean, and what the issues are, and what the differences are, and so on. I don't know. Is this a shift of party system that's underway right now, or is this just some sort of one-off fluke wildcard election that's resulted from having this very, very, to put it charitably, unique character and personality in the fray. On the one hand, Trump has rhetorically attacked at least some elements of the bipartisan consensus on both the economy and foreign policy, but on the other hand, he is, of course, wildly inconsistent. And what, if anything, of what he says does he really mean, who the hell knows? And it certainly is not a very promising thing to see how many of the advisors he's brought on, especially in regards to foreign policy, so far have been the same old neoconish Republican Party hacks that have been around for decades. But it's certainly interesting, even for something like me who thinks it's all horrible and the two parties are both terrible and they're extremely unlikely to make anything much better in the short term. It's still very amusing to watch from sort of like a, just a spectacle point of view. And it's interesting to think about these things. Whether Trump wins or loses, will his campaign permanently change one or both of the two major parties in America? In other words, will it be something that, with the benefit of hindsight, when we're looking back on this era in, I don't know, 20 years or so, will it be something that political historians will look back on as being akin to the elections that signaled party shifts or shifts of party system in the past? Will it be one of those elections, like 1896, or 1932. And all I can tell you at the moment is I really don't know. Personally, I'm not at all optimistic that whoever wins out of these two characters will make anything much better. My own amateur diagnosis is we've got a psychopath in Hillary Clinton running against a narcissist and possible sociopath in Donald Trump. Either of these people is going to end up at the head of the most massive and powerful Leviathan state that has ever existed in all of human history. Ponder that. That is an ominous thought. Neither of them has anything remotely resembling a strong, consistent, coherent, even mildly liberty-friendly philosophy. Both are absolutely frightening, though sometimes in different ways. Both, I think, are pretty clearly authoritarians, in ways that even people like Bush and Obama were not. But I guess all us plebeians can do is kind of sit back and have a good laugh at it. Because like George Carlin said, when you're born into the human race, you've got a ticket to the freak show. And if you're born in America, you've got a front row seat. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. 
but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.